we sang. It says, marching on our knees. My goodness, what a great picture. Knees, uh, being on our knees is a place of prayer. It's a place of deep intercession. And that's the place where great advancement comes. So I'm going to be talking about the concept of Pentecost and how it happened, how it came about. So if you would, open your Bibles, and we'll go right to Acts chapter 1. And I want to talk to you out of this, uh, this amazing <clears throat> chapter. Many people think that Jesus' final words to the church was, go into all the world, preach the gospel, disciple nations. It wasn't his last words. His last words were, wait in Jerusalem until you receive the promise of the Father. Wait in Jerusalem until you're clothed with power from on high. The go is essential. The wait prepares us for the going. And the whole point of the waiting is there is something more than what you've seen to this point. There is something more that God has in store for you. Imagine yourself one of the 11 remaining disciples and Jesus appears to them. One of the moments he appeared to them is in John 20 where they were hiding in a room thinking they were going to be killed next. If you can imagine the hostility of the hour, they are literally afraid for their lives as they hide out in this room. Jesus always knows where we are. And so he just appeared walking through the wall. However, he got there. They were, that didn't help the fear issue at all when somebody just appears and they didn't know it was Jesus. So you got to keep that in mind. Jesus just appears in this room. They, their fear just got compounded and they are terrified. And Jesus says, peace to you. That didn't help because they were, they're in way too much fear to receive any kind of peace. And so Jesus showed him the scars in his hands, his side, his feet. When they saw that, they recognized this is Jesus. We saw him crucified. As soon as they realized that, they, they began to experience the peace that Jesus promised. And he said again to them, again to you, I say, peace to you. This is important to realize. In this moment, of ab- sometimes we're so filled with fear and terror that, that we can't find peace. And yet it's, it's here. It's here. There has to be a turning. And what happened in the hearts of the disciples, there was a turning. They recognized, oh, it's Jesus. He is with us. And when he spoke peace the second time, he breathed on them. The Holy Spirit came upon them and they received true peace. All right, here's, here's the deal. Jesus gave them in that decree, go into all the world, preach the gospel. He gave them a commission. What else did he give them in the commission? Our response, our yes to the commission of God is what connects us to the authority of God. They were given authority in that moment. But then he said, wait in Jerusalem. Why? Because we need both authority and power. That is how Jesus ministered. It's how the disciples ministered when they were deputized under Jesus's anointing. They were deputized. If you remember in Luke 9, Jesus gave his disciples power and authority. He gave them both to function in while he was on the earth. But when he left and went to the right hand of the Father, they had to find once again this place of authority and this place of power because now they were going to do it without Jesus being at their side. 
I remind you of something that I think is, is so critical, so important. One of the comments that Jesus made to his disciples that I'm sure was about the most difficult thing to comprehend they've ever heard him say. He said, it is better for you that I go. Now imagine that. They've spent three and a half years with Jesus. They can ask him anything. They're constantly impacted by his actions, his words. They learn from his behavior. Everything is an overwhelming three and a half year school of discipleship. And in this moment of of absolute adoration. They want to sit at his right hand, at his left. They want to be there as he takes a dominion over the kingdoms of the world. And they're all positioning themselves to be a support to this Messiah. And then he says, it's better that I go. I can't imagine any, hearing anything in their position that would be more opposite of what they would normally feel. He said, it's better that I go because if I don't go, I can't send the Holy Spirit to you. Here's the deal. Picture this, you're one of the 11. Jesus is at your side. At any moment, you can reach out and touch him. You can ask him a question. You can receive instruction. He is there just guiding you with his eyes even, the way he does life. There's a constant lesson of what it is to know God, to follow God. He's right here. And yet that one who is right here said, it's gonna be better if I go because I'll send the Holy Spirit. So here's the challenge. Is your relationship with the Holy Spirit better than if Jesus were standing at your side. If it's not better, then we're not utilizing what God actually provided for us by giving us the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit that rests upon us. This is what we were assigned to. We were assigned to this. The gospel of the kingdom of God, Paul says, is not in word, only. It is in power. There must be the demonstration of power. Power in our personal life to overcome a sin, temptation, those kinds of issues. But it's power for the miraculous. It's power to confront the impossibilities of life. This is what we are assigned to live in, to walk in, is to walk in the absolute power of God, to demonstrate the resurrection of Jesus. Every time you and I pray for someone and there's a miracle, it's a demonstration that the resurrection of Jesus is real. If I pray for you and you experience a miracle, you've just seen what God can do. If I pray for you and nothing happens, you've just seen what I can do. It's the absolute clothing with power that makes it possible for us to demonstrate the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When we get to Acts chapter one, we see twice in the first few verses him talking about the kingdom of God. All of you parents know that when you're about to leave the house and your, your kids are in the house, you have final words of instruction. Maybe they are staying with their grandparents. Maybe they're staying with uh, a babysitter. But you have final words of instruction. The final words are your most important words. That's what they, you want them to remember before you leave for the evening or for a week, whatever it might be. Jesus' final words to his disciples was instruction in the context of wait, was instruction about the kingdom of God. It says in verse three, the last part, he says, he spent 40 days speaking to them of things pertaining the kingdom of God. The very next words out of his mouth, um, excuse me, the very next thing out of his mouth is he says, 
John baptized with water, you will be baptized in the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So the disciples then say, hey, I got a question. When are you going to restore the kingdom? Uh, When are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus says, it's not for you to know the times, but, excuse me, but you shall receive power, verse 8, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses. What's the point I want to make? Twice in chapter 1, is the conversation about the kingdom of God. Once it was in his instruction. Second time, it was their question. When are you restoring the kingdom to Israel? Both times, the very first subject he turns to after talking about the kingdom of God was the baptism in the Holy Spirit. I'd just like to suggest, use this as kind of a springboard. I'd just like to suggest that the introduction to the realities of the kingdom of God is the baptism in the Holy Spirit. It immerses us into a reality. And this is available for everyone. This is not haves and haves not. I, I, I don't like that, that, that whole argument, that whole concept. This is available for everyone who confesses Christ, that the Spirit of God would come upon us. He'll manifest differently. But the point is, Jesus is represented well. That's what we're looking for, that Jesus is represented accurately for who he really is. I want you to move fast forward now <clears throat> to verse 14. Verse 14 says, <clears throat> these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Now this is an interesting verse. We know from the rest of the chapter, there's around 120 people. So let's just say 120 people, which is interesting to me because Jesus elsewhere in scripture says, After his death, he appeared to over 500 people. But there was only 120 in the prayer meeting. I don't know where the 380 went. I'm sure they got it later. I just don't want to miss when he shows up. I don't want to miss. So here they are. It says they continued in one accord in prayer. It's established that the prayer uh, out of unity had been taking place in this chapter. This is extremely significant. Look who attended the meeting. Of course, we have here Mary, the mother of Jesus, uh, some of the women that were supporters, and his brothers. Why is that important? Because one of the last times we read about his brothers, they didn't believe he was the Messiah. And they tried to trick him into going into a public place to receive ridicule and opposition. So something has happened during this journey where they've come to the realization they've spent all this time growing up with the Son of God in the house. Imagine that realization. You've also got the 11 uh, disciples who spent their time, three and a half years, succeeding in ministry for sure, but they were also caught comparing themselves with one another, thinking they are better than the other, arguing as to who was the greatest. So we've got this accumulation of 120 people who have many issues throughout their life together. And yet this 10 days of prayer I don't know if they settled the issues before they started the 10-day prayer meeting or if they got ironed out in the prayer meeting. Do you remember when Peter denied Jesus? And Jesus shows up afterwards and he says to Peter, do you love me more than these? I think he was asking, Peter, do you love me more than the other remaining 10? Do 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 you really think you love me more than everybody else? 
because there was this, this arrogance, this superiority, this, this thing that rose up in him to think everybody else is going to blow up, but not me. I'm, I'm the most secure one here. And Jesus confronted that in him, and it was in that repentance that he was fully restored. So let's get back to the story here. They continued in one accord in prayer. My translation adds the word and supplication. Let me talk to you for just a moment about the issue of prayer. Our prayer life reveals how conscious we are of the God who is with us. You can't have someone as glorious and significant as the Spirit of God resting upon a person and have that person not talk to him. The depth of our prayer life reveals the level of awareness we have to the Spirit of God in our lives. I'm not talking theologically. All of us as believers can say, we know that the Holy Spirit lives in us. We know that the Holy Spirit walks with us. He guides us. He teaches. I get that. I know that. I'm talking about the daily ongoing consciousness of the Holy Spirit of God. David said in the Old Testament, he said, I daily set the Lord before me. It's not that we can position God where we want. He's, he's, he's not under our command. We are under his. But David was saying, he's everywhere, so I turn my attention to God being with me. And that consciousness of God in his life is what in many ways enabled him to be the greatest king Israel ever had. So let's get back to the subject. The second thing I want to challenge you in, for most people, our prayer life are times where we're pursuing comfort, pursuing peace, Uh, the pleasure of the Lord. Now, comfort, pleasure, let's just take those two words. Those are biblical concepts. God is the one who designed pleasure. He is the one who designed comfort. He is the one who, who made us to be able to rest in him. I'm accepted in the beloved. He delights in me. I'm his treasure. I'm the apple of his eye. All those things are absolutely 100% true. But what happens when we distort our pursuit of comfort we sacrifice having a lifestyle of impacting prayer. There are prayers of fellowship with Lord, which is refreshing, reassuring, building hope, building faith. But the Apostle Paul taught at one point about prayer being likened unto giving birth. He actually said, and I am in labor for you until Christ is formed in you. And he was, uh, the context there was prayer. So think about this. This is an awkward uh, subject, but it's, it's, it's the intensity of prayer. And for those who only pursue a relationship with God of comfort and pleasure will never know the kind of prayer that moves mountains. You have to be able to feel the grief of the Lord the pain of a situation. As parents, we know what that is, to be in a a painful situation with our children. But here's the vital thing, is we come before the Lord and we pray until it is lifted, until there is that sense of breakthrough. I remember my brother is, uh, he's 10 years younger than I am, Bob or Bobby at the time. When he was 11 months old, uh, he was very, very near death. In fact, the doctors uh, 
said that he, he was within 12 hours of dying. I remember my, my mom's parents lived with us at the time, in fact, for a good part of my life, uh, growing up years. And they lived with us during that season. And I remember my grandfather going to his knees. I still can see, I could take you to the place where he knelt in front of the couch in our living room. And he was there for an extended period of time. And he was praying. You see, my grandparents also lost a child at 11 months old. This whole thing flashes back on them. He, he dug his heels in, if you will, in, in a place of prayer. He marched on his knees is even a better for, way to say it. And he knelt in front of that couch and he began to pray and intercede. As a kid, I, 10 years old, I didn't, 11 years old, I didn't know what all he was doing or experiencing. I mean, I knew he was praying. I knew Bobby was in serious trouble, but I, I didn't get then what I get now. He, he, he dug into that crisis that we were facing as a family. And he prayed. And he was there for hours. And I remember when he got up, if I remember correctly, it was about two o'clock in the afternoon. He got up off his knees and he turned to the family. And he said, Bobby will be okay. Why? Because he had a fight The fight is not with people. The fight is with the powers of darkness that kill, steal, and destroy. So often we blame so many other people for what's going on, but he dug his knees into the ground, if you will, and he contended with that that thing until it was broken. And he turned to the family, he said, Bobby will be okay. My parents, when they got back to the hospital that afternoon, the doctors said in so many words, there's been a very interesting turnaround since about two o'clock this afternoon. That's when Grandpa got up and said, Bobby will be okay. You see, there's something about prayer that moves mountains. It means that I'm not looking for a life of pleasure and comfort only. I'm looking to make a difference. And to make a difference, I'm going to dig my heels in and I'm going to contend for a breakthrough because a breakthrough must come. The problem happens for many, as they feel that burden of the Lord, they don't ever give it to them. And so they walk around as depressed people, look like they've been baptized in pickle juice, you know. They just, they just have no joy about them. That's not the answer either. The answer is, and I'm going to prove how holy I am by how depressed I am. That is, that is anti the whole point that we're making here, is that we pray unto something. Prayer is supposed to be a moment of exchange. That moment sometimes lasts for days. That moment sometimes lasts for moments. Read Nehemiah's uh, prayers uh, in the book of Nehemiah. One sentence prayers that moved mountains. But see, if the prayer doesn't move me, it's not likely to move him. So here's this moment in prayer where we come before the Lord. And Jesus himself said, Come to me, 
you who are weary and heavy laden. There's a lot of folks watching this that are weary and heavy laden. Heavy why? Maybe it's the coronavirus. Maybe it's, uh, maybe it's the racial conflict. Maybe it's something completely different. It's, it's the business that you lost during this thing. Maybe it's the fact you don't know what you're going to do when you're able to get back to work. It could be any number of things, uh, health crisis, whatever it might be. There's a lot of folks watching this broadcast today that are weary and heavy laden. Jesus speaks to you, and he says, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden. Step one, we've got to know who to go to. We go to him. I don't go to him plus this person, this person, this person. He's not something I try. He's not on trial. We are. I go to him, but I go to him to make an exchange. So Jesus said, come to me, you who are weary, heavy laden. I will give you rest. Think about it. You come to me with your stuff, and I will give you my stuff. Let's make the exchange. As I've told so many of you so many times through the years, if you walk into the presence of God, heavy burdened, and you leave the same way you came in, then you weren't praying, you were complaining. Might want to write that one down. Prayer automatically means here is an exchange. I'm giving you... I I was willing to carry this into your presence, this that I've experienced in life, but I see you as the source of life. Let's make the exchange. I receive now your rest. I want to welcome you into this kind of a journey. I need to move on quickly here. We get down to chapter two, and he says in verse one, he says, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Again, here's this one accord concept. One accord, not, not a car, not the accord. One accord, 120 people in one accord. That would be a lot of people. All right. One accord. They're in unity. Unity is not uniformity. Now, listen carefully. Most people's understanding of unity is the fight for uniformity. True unity requires diversity. And a man shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one. They are not the same. Diversity is required for biblical unity. Unity does not tolerate diversity. It celebrates it. It's what makes it so beautiful. The second thing I would say about unity is it's not something you and I can create. Most human efforts for unity, as noble as they may be, are simple attempts for agreement and or understanding. Not evil, not bad, just insufficient. The scripture says in Ephesians chapter four, I think it's verse two, he says, preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Tells us a couple things about unity. Number one, preserve. I can't create it. It's already in existence. How did it get there? It's the unity of the spirit. True biblical unity is is seen wherever the Holy Spirit has influence. Anytime you see in a relationship, a husband or wife, a church family, 
a nation. Anytime you see real, true unity, not just we'll agree for this season, true biblical unity, it is the result of the Holy Spirit's influence in those individuals' lives. Jesus prayed a prayer that they might be one, but what did he join to it? He said, I gave them my glory that they might be one. What is the glory? The glory is the manifested presence of Jesus seen as the Holy Spirit comes upon his people. I gave them my glory. I gave them the manifestation of the presence of God upon them. Why? That they might be one. You never see where there's a mighty outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Let's just take some of the things we've seen happen in this room. I've watched this for years. When the Spirit, when the power of God shows up in a room, I don't mean just for miracles, although I'm, I'm all in for that. When the power of God shows up in a room, it's hard to find anyone who's mad at somebody else. There's something that takes place in that, in that environment where all the hostilities, all the objections, all the stuff, you know, the love remembers no wrong. I'm not keeping an account. Why? It just all lost its importance in the presence. My challenge, my challenge to you is Pentecost, yes, it's about the demonstration of power. But the basis, if you, if you consider the platform for this manifestation of the power of God, the resurrection, the testimony of the resurrection of Christ through power. The platform was they prayed together in one accord. They were, they were united in heart. So much so, if they saw one of their own brothers or sisters in need, they would sell a position, possession to take care of that need. The point is, is it was... It was unity to the point of self-sacrifice. In other words, I'll pay any price to maintain this. What does it look like to preserve the unity of the Spirit? It means I am willing to invest. I'm not just going to pray something and then to ease my conscience and, and move out of doing something. I'm not just going to check, check the box that I prayed for unity. I'm going to follow my prayer with action. I was thinking this morning, one of my favorite stories is where Israel marched around the walls of Jericho. Crazy story. They marched around for seven days. The last day, seven times, they lifted up a shout. Let's just use this as kind of a a unique picture. The marching around the walls, for me, symbolizes prayer. Once the shout was lifted up, and the walls fell, they still had to go in and take possession of what was there. In other words, prayer removed the obstacle to their victory. They still had to go exercise victory. Prayer is vital. You, you and I must pray. We must pray until we can get up and say, Bobby will be okay. But there still needs to be then followed with an action that says, all right, let's go see our son. Let's go see our grandson. Let's do whatever the, the situation demands. I taught on this several years ago, and I, I, I want so much to talk about it today. But I, I, let, let me just say that thousands of people from Jerusalem gathered together because they heard a sound. I just want to suggest to you, the sound was not 120 people praying in tongues. It was not 120 people praying in other languages. Reading is not the biggest cultural center in the earth. And yet you can go downtown and you see 
four or five of our Arabic students talking in their language, they're not going to draw a crowd of thousands. You're not going to awaken an entire city like Jerusalem to something simply because you're speaking four languages. We already see from the testimony here, the city was filled with people speaking in other languages. That wasn't it. What drew them was the roar of heaven. There was a sound. There was the sound of the heart of God that was released into the earth and it awakened an entire city. And they, they dropped their toys, their work tools, their, their pots and pans, whatever they were doing at nine o'clock in the morning. And they were drawn to where this sound occurred. And when they saw these people praying in other languages, apparently acting so much dis, disoriented because there was the thought that they were intoxicated, they stand there and they start mocking them. They were confused. All kinds of reactions that were negative reactions. People say, well, if it's a real revival, there'll be no offense. The opposite is true. The opposite is true. Anytime God shows up, there will be offense. It's just, it's the, it's the way it is. One, one of the great prophets from the recent years <clears throat> said, God will offend your mind to reveal your heart. And in that moment, they mocked and Peter stood up. And I want you to see this. In chapter two, verse 14, it says, Peter standing up with the 11, raised his voice and he said, men of Judea, oh, who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. These are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. That's a strange argument. I want to convince you that they're not drunk like you think they are. How can I say that? It's nine o'clock in the morning. Strange argument. But then he begins to read. And I want you to see what he reads, what he declares. He quotes this out of the book of Joel, the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Okay, stop for a moment. When the Holy Spirit is poured out, where the Spirit of God is working in a group, when he is truly free to do as he pleases, he breaks every barrier that we create. And I want you to look at them right now. I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, all flesh, every race. When the Spirit of God shows up, it's a level playing field. There's not haves and have-nots. There's not this race versus this race, this class versus this class. All of that stuff is, is obliterated in the presence of God. That's why we can say preserve the unity. Unity is the fruit of his working in and through us. So look at it again. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Sons and daughters. The gender barrier, and there's only two. The gender barrier is broken in the outpouring of the Spirit. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. The age barrier is broken in the move of the Spirit. On your men servants and maid servants, I will pour out my Spirit in those days. The class barrier, those who are the wealthy, those who are the poorest, those who are the servants of others, the class barrier is broken. What's the point? When the Holy Spirit shows up in power, it's a level playing field. It's critical for us. 
We see even when Jesus would multiply food, we'll see that he multiplied the food with the 4,000, the 5,000. But you'll notice a note in that number. It will say, and 5,000 besides women and children. Women and children were, uh, oh yeah. See, in the culture of that day, they counted a crowd by the number of men in the crowd. And then they mentioned, and women and children. It's interesting that in one of these stories, the one who was ignored, the child, is the one who had the seed for the miracle, the loaves and the fishes. The ones who nobody counting counted, Jesus counted and brought him into the place where his lunch became what seeded the cloud for the multiplication of food. You see, in Old Testament, in the culture of the day, New New Testament, the Gospels, what you see is you see a crowd counted by the number of men. But all of a sudden, something happens. The Holy Spirit shows up. There's 120 people in an upper room praying. How many men? How many women? Doesn't say. Why? Because they're treated the same. See, Jesus destroys. He destroys the power of division. Now we have to live in it. He destroys the power of division that exists between all flesh. He's the one who destroys that barrier between men and women. What men are qualified to do, what women are qualified to do. He's the one who destroys that barrier, that dividing wall. He is the one who destroys the, well, God speaks through the aged, or it's just the young people that have the real spark for revival. He's the one who destroys that dividing wall. He destroys it and calls it foolishness. He's the one who comes and he touches the lowest of the low in this context, the servants, the slaves of another master. And he gives them access to the same wonderful and glorious outpouring of the Holy Spirit that is offered to all. We have to be careful that we don't return to a cultural standard that exalts one group above another. We have to protect our heart to make sure that we don't move to cultural values, sometimes good, sometimes very corrupt, that we don't return to cultural values instead of kingdom values. In the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, Jesus said it, I gave them my glory that they might be one. Preserve the unity of the Spirit. Normally, on a day like today, I would spend the bulk of my time talking to you about our need for the absolute power of God. My goodness, uh, there's just never been a time where it's been more needed than right now. We've got to have the demonstration of the resurrection power of God flowing through the lives of believers like you and like me. There are so many pandemics. There are so many crises, cancer, and various kinds of illnesses that people carry. They, they, they're under the weight of, of that affliction, infirmity. They need someone like you that will say, you know what? I'm not powerful, powerful by myself, but I'm also not by myself. The Spirit of God is in me. The Spirit of God rests upon me. And because that's the reality I live in, I would love to pray for you and let's see this thing broken. This is who we are. 
Folks, this is who we are. Every nation of the world is crying out for the authentic resurrection, resurrected Jesus to be put on display where we confront these things that are wrong. Today, I'm taking a special emphasis more than I would normally because of what's happened in our own nation here, tragically, in, these, in this last week. And let's be honest, ongoing, periodically, for our entire lifetime. It's got to stop. But it's not going to stop because you and I somehow just become better people. I, I, I believe in human effort, so f- forgive me if, if you misunderstand that. I, I believe we need to do all we can do. Once the walls of Jericho are down, we still have to use he- human effort and go in and, and take possession of what God promised. But here's the deal. The Spirit of God comes upon us as a people because there is a, a demonstration of who Jesus is in our unity. One of the metaphors that is used in Scripture is that I am a member of the body of Christ. Let's be honest. If we were to see the body of Christ the way we often act, we would have a hand over there, a finger over there, a leg over there, divided parts that don't seem to get along. And people who suffer with horrible diseases illustrate and manifest to us what it's like to have arms that don't cooperate, that have legs that they cannot control, they cannot stand on. I'm in regular conversation with a dear friend of mine. All she wants to do is walk. All she wants to do, but she can't. She is so bound in this wheelchair. And so we're contending for her, for all of to arise and to a walk because it's the destiny of the Lord. He made those legs to walk on. So it's you and it's me. It's yes, it's a demonstration of the power of God. But right now I want to call your attention to people around you, people around me that need an extra moment, that need reassurance more than just when they're watching, but when they're not watching, we take a stand and we just say, not on my shift, not on my shift. That kind of behavior is unaccepted, unacceptable. Jesus loves every race. In fact, let me just say this. What every race, in this area, we have the Native Americans, what they contribute to our life is rich. It's glorious. We have the, the continual uh, migration, I'll use uh, a term, of the Hispanic population that comes. They bring such quality of life to us. The African-Americans, the list goes on and on. I, uh, I know I'll miss people, but the point is we are better because they're in our lives. They don't deserve just toleration. They deserve celebration. They deserve honor. And I'd like to suggest to you that's at least one of the biblical manifestations of the power of the Spirit of God coming upon his people. The demonstration, he said it, Jesus said it, love one another so they'll know you follow me. Let the display of your care, your affection, your concern, it doesn't even mean that we have to agree on everything. It just means I won't let 
what I think that's different than what you think interfere with the love we have for one another. Thank you.